Hey, Village Church, Pastor Mark here. Uh, really good to have you, especially if you're new. You're online, you're joining us, our family, all across different provinces, different countries. Glad you are here. If you have a Bible, open it up to Psalm chapter 16. That is where we're gonna be today. And uh, we did people in the fire for basically the whole time we've been online as a church. But now we're jumping back into the series that we were doing uh, called uh, the Book of Psalms, uh, creatively titled Psalms. And we're doing Psalms 1 to 41. So if you got a Bible, Psalm chapter 16, we've got a bunch of stuff to get through as you turn there. Listen, have you ever been uh, wrong about something? Like you just like, I know probably doesn't happen very much in life. My wife tells me it doesn't happen very much in, in regard to me, but to be wrong about something, there's a couple times uh, where I was actually wrong about something. Uh, the, the first one I'll tell you about was a bunch of years ago. I got to probably go back 10 years to find an example. Uh, 2010, 2011, we we're Village Church. And I know I was wrong because this thing is recorded. Uh, I was preaching a sermon in the early days of Village, probably 150 people gathered in this little elementary school. And I had uh, an iPhone. I owned an iPhone and I owned a Mac computer. And Steve Jobs introduced this new invention. Um, and it was called an iPad. And on record, I literally got up in front of the church and said, guys, I have an iPhone. I have a laptop. Now he's trying to get me to buy this iPad. This is going to be the dumbest invention. I'm never, I'm on record right now. I am never going to own one of these things. If I have a phone, I have a, what do I need this for? He's just trying to take all of our money. Ha ha, had a funny laugh because that thing was going to go nowhere. No one was going to buy one of those things. All right. So um, yeah, I was wrong. All right. I was wrong. I mean, you got to go back 10 years. Okay. Here's another example. My buddy years ago, um, I was in high school and we were in a band and we loved band. He was a drummer and I used to sing a little bit and write songs. We used to have a lot of fun. And I hadn't seen him for about six months. And he called me up and he's like, hey, uh, uh, I want to show you something. I, 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 I'm trying out for this band to become a drummer for a little bit for this person. And I don't know if it's going to go anywhere. And so I want to show you kind of this album uh, that she cut and see if it's going to go anywhere. So he comes and picks me up. I said I was living in Toronto. We go down to the, to the lake and we sit in his car and I remember the night he shows me this album and we go through every single song and I listen to it and he goes, so what do you think? Should I like stop my life and go on tour with this girl because she's going to have a big tour of this album, whatever. And I'm like, I don't think she's going to go anywhere. I literally listen to this album and it's not going to go anywhere. No one's going to know her name. I think you should just keep working at the warehouse that you're working at. And he's like, I don't know. He did it anyway. Anyway, so her name was Avril Lavigne. All right, so I don't know if any of you have heard of her before, but he toured with Avril Lavigne for five years as her drummer, became like one of the biggest singles of all time. All right, uh, so I, sometimes I'm wrong about stuff, all right? Sometimes my gut is just off. And maybe that's you. And here's the question. So you're a skeptic, maybe, or a Christian, maybe. Um, there's stuff you're wrong about right now that actually needs to be corrected. And this psalm is going to correct one major thing about us, but a bunch of things about us. It's a beautiful psalm. It's actually one of the most, it's called the, 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 one of the golden psalms. Uh, it's been called David, one of David's jewels, all right, in the whole book of Psalms. Uh, if you go to Luke 24, there's a fascinating thing that happens. There's two disciples walking from Jerusalem uh, on their way to a place called Emmaus. And 
Uh, Jesus shows up incognito after he's resurrected. He's like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, oh my goodness, uh, things suck. Like our, our king that we thought was going to be crowned the king of all things and reign and rule uh, died on a cross and he's done. And our whole movement that we've been following for three years is over. And in Luke 24, it says that Jesus opened up the scriptures and showed them that all the Old Testament scriptures had to do with him. And it was about these events of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, we don't, I, w- I would have loved to be there for that sermon. We don't know what passages he preached to them and showed them in the Old Testament, but I can almost guarantee you Psalm 16 was one of them. It was one of these most important texts. And the reason I know that is because Peter preaches from it in Acts 2 and Paul preaches from it in Acts 13. And they say that, look, all of history is being pointed to in this Psalm and what it's about. And so hone in Psalm 16. Here we go. We're going to jump into this. It starts this way in verse one. It says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. So preserve me, keep me, keep me safe in the midst of the times that I'm in. Life is hard. The world is a dangerous place. We know that, right? There's viruses, there's shootings, there's uh, earthquakes. There's all kinds of things that can take you out. And the Bible never promises you not to be taken out, but he's saying, ultimately, Lord, preserve me. I want you to protect me. Literally the Hebrew word for preserve me is like a, like a security guard around a president or a king that I'm gonna trust in somebody to protect me, to make me secure. Now, some of you, you know that the child in all of us wants ultimately to be secure. All of us want that. In this moment right now that we're all facing, we all wanna be to have some semblance of security in our life, to feel like, man, there's somebody taking care of me, right? And, and one of the things about kids, like when you put kids to bed, they want security, right? When you put a kid to bed, you don't get them all riled up. Now, one of the things that you do do though is what is going to make a kid secure? Listen, one of the things parents sometimes do is they lie to their kids. And so a kid will go to bed and say, and I, and I love this about Christianity, it's a realist worldview where it says, you know what? The world is broken. It's messed up. It stinks sometimes. And so when a kid, when you're putting a kid to bed, if you're believers in Jesus, um, your version when they say, are there monsters and is there terrible realities in the world? It's not to lie to them and say, no. It's to say there are things in the world that are destructive, but the reality is that Jesus is the one who's in control. So are there dragons in the world? Yes, but Jesus is the dragon slayer, All right? Get them to actually hold on to something rather than lie to them and say that, because that's what's gonna get them to actually do what he's doing, which is in God, I take refuge. See, some of you take refuge only in yourself. The only thing you have to look to, to, to cry out, preserve me is money or sex or fame or family or whatever, and you're looking up all these things in your own life to preserve you, to, to protect you, to give you comfort, to give you meaning, to give you joy. And he's saying, you, gotta, you, you have to find that in God or else it's not gonna work. You, you look at uh, the baby boomers, all right? All, a bunch of you who are boomers out there. One of the sociological things about baby boomers is that you're, you're never content. You're kind of not content and bored. And so you kind of go around life and you're always looking for the next thing and the next adventure and the next retirement plan or whatever. And he's going, you're never gonna find that contentment outside of God. You're never gonna, like think about, there's even a, 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 a sociologist I read recently talking about how um, the negative implications implications of secularization that have happened in our life. And that, that we have gone into high schools, for instance, take you know, youth and kids, and we've said, there is no God, uh, you're just an animal. 
Uh, and you, you base your life on animalistic instincts. There is, there's, and what we've done is we've then removed meaning. We've moved existence. We've moved morality. We've removed uh, where we actually came from. We've removed a sense of, of destiny, judgment, accountability, morality. And so why are we surprised when kids uh, shoot up schools or act in this particular way or act in that way? We have no moral basis and construct. And one of the sociologists, she was an atheist, said one of the things we've done in regard to secularization is we've taken God out of the equation and that's gonna be bad for us as a society and as a church tribe. We hadn't really thought through it, but in removing it, it takes something from us. You see it right now. No one has, knows how to deal with suffering. So we're borrowing it from Eastern mysticism and religion and all kinds. We're, we're trying to figure out what to do. And so this is one of the things about it. We can't remove God from the equation or we're lost ultimately. And so what he said, it's, it's actually called uh, the gravedigger effect. Sociologists talk about the idea that an idea works so well that you actually end up digging your own grave. And I think this is true about what they do is they go back uh, to the 15th, 16th century. The Protestant Reformation worked so well, it brought about capitalism and capitalism wanted to create wealth and prosperity around the world and it worked and it worked so well that ironically, the Protestant Reformation, which was calling people to believe in God, worked so well that we created a society that didn't need God anymore. That's the gravedigger effect. It's so good that we just, we get food. We get, like you go to Uganda. Those people believe in God out of necessity because, okay, I need it to rain now or else my crops won't grow. Okay, I need it to stop raining now so my crops can grow. All this is daily. And this is why Jesus, even when he's talking in the, in the Lord's prayer, he's like, give us today our daily bread because what's he trying to do? He's trying to fuse God back into the world for us. He's saying, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I don't find refuge and salvation in myself. It's you. You're the one behind the veil. And for some of you right now, you don't even believe that there is anything behind the veil. And what you've got to start to realize is there are bigger questions in the world to answer. That you have to answer the question of, is, if there's a God, there probably, there, there, it means I have a soul. Meaning, I don't just get to answer the questions of whether I'm good this month or whether I have a family or whether I have a job. You've got to ask bigger existential meaning questions about your own destiny. Think about the fact that Steve Jobs himself died with, worth $10 billion in his 50s. Not even money and fame and all the money in the world could keep him alive. So at the end of the day, you're going to end up on a deathbed and you have to ask the question, do I have a soul? And if I do, is it connected to God? Here's the big questions of what he's trying to say. And so he's saying behind the veil, there actually is a God. Don't be fooled. The book of Proverbs said, the fool says there is no God. All right? And we talked about that last week that you might not actually have the best arguments for why you don't believe in God, that actually those arguments are pretty weak. So um, here's, here, here's how the Bible talks about it. I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. So um, I do weddings and whenever I do weddings, I get up and I kind of read from Matthew 19. Matthew 19 has this great line where he says, what God has brought together, let man not separate. And so what he's been, and what I say to the couples is, so however you met, right? Like if you met, you know, on the internet or you met at church or you met in a pub or whatever, you have that. But behind that, Jesus is saying, it was like, like literally um, I was uh, talking, what, what, uh, I, I was setting someone up the other day, actually. I had this uh, girl that I know who's single, a guy I know is single. I'm like, oh, I think you guys would actually make it. So I connected them via text. Right? And now they're going, you know, trying to doing their little Zoom meetups and try to, and they actually like it. You know, two or three weeks in, they're like, oh, this is going really good. And I'm like, dude, I'm the baby maker, bro. I'm, sorry, that's not the right term. I'm the, uh, I'm, I'm the setup guy. I 
whatever. I may make it. I'm the setup guy. I'm the guy who can connect people. So, so however you met, all right, what Jesus is saying, Matthew 19, what God has joined together, let man not separate. However you met, God actually was the one behind it. You met on the internet, Mark Clark set you up, however it is, but it was actually God behind it. And so this is what we got to start dealing with in life. You see these things on this side of the veil, but what's actually going on behind the scenes? And for some of you, you got to understand it makes total rational sense. You, it, it's dumb to come up with the idea that there is nothing behind everything. It's dumb because you look at even the Big Bang and you say, if this is a world began 15 billion years ago, if that's the way matter and energy and time and everything came into existence in a single moment, great. In order for that to work, scientists tell us you had to have 122 dials zoned into the million millionth for the Big Bang to even work or everything would have just collapsed into a hot fireball and stars and space and time and matter never would have existed. Now, think about that and then think about this. Those dials would have had to somehow exist even before the Big Bang happened. Where were they? Literally, the laws of physics would have already had to exist somewhere to take over, to be dialed in, to do what they're going to do. Where did they come? Where did math come from? All this stuff. When you start looking at DNA and you realize there's actual language in your DNA that defines your eye color and your hair color, follow the evidence where it goes. There is a God behind all this. Now, let me illustrate this this way, and I don't want to freak anybody out, but I'll, I'll just tell you this. So, years ago, I uh, was renting a particular house and we used to rent a bunch of houses and uh, we were renting a house and um, we started to sense that there was something weird going on in the house. All right. Uh, and this hadn't happened to us before, but we would kind of sense like a presence once in a while. And, uh, and I remember sitting up in my bed and in my bedroom and looking at my closet and just feeling like, just kind of staring at it. And then I'd be working in my office, which was connected to it. And I would just be like, to the point where I would just shut down my work and go to bed. And then I'd wake up at two or three in the morning. And I found myself for weeks on end, walking around my house with a baseball bat at two in the morning, convinced that there was someone in my house lurking. All right, literally for weeks on end, I would do it thinking someone was there. And then one night I was sitting watching and I heard something drag on the ceiling in my bedroom. And I thought it was my wife. And I said, Aaron? And from behind me, she's like, yeah, I'm right here. And I ran upstairs. All the kids were asleep. Stuff started to happen. But I didn't want to tell anybody. And so I didn't even really talk to Aaron that much about it. I just kind of kept it in, prayed about it. Started to feel uncomfortable in this house, okay? So... I fly to Toronto to speak at this conference. And while I'm there, there's this pastor who I've never met, I've never talked to in my life. Uh, he gets in touch with me. He's like, hey, you wanna go for coffee? So we go for coffee. We're sitting there chatting, two hours talking about ministry. And all of a sudden at the end of the meeting, this is not a joke, this is a total true story. He looks at me and he says, hey, can I ask you a question? Um, how are you feeling about your house right now? And I'm like, uh, wh what do you mean? And he's like, well, I, I just gotta be honest with you. I have like this spiritual gift of like discerning of spirits. And I'm actually, and he starts to go, <coughs> I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm having a physical reaction to a presence in your house. And I'm like, oh, he's like, it's a demon. And I'm like, what? He goes, do you want to know where it is? And I said, uh, sure. And he's like, it's in the closet. He pulls a piece of paper out and draws my house my bedroom, my office, my closet. He says it was invited there. He starts to tell me, I'm like freaking out. I'm like, oh, I gotta get home, man. All right, go home, pray through my house. Listen, 
Are you telling me there is no God? This guy's never even talked to me before in my life about anything. And he starts calling out experiences that I've had. Listen, there is something behind the veil, friends. There's something beyond the materialism and the naturalism that you think in your life. Listen, there was a guy who got in touch with me this week. Okay, he had a bad uh, few days in his marriage and things went uh, pretty bad. And so he needed a place to stay. And he's like, I got no place to stay. I need to stay somewhere for a few months. I just need to, some space. We need to separate a little bit from my wife and blah, blah, blah. And I don't know where to stay and I have no money. I said, okay, um, I'll, I'll, I'll try to figure something out. I hang up the phone. I'm not joking you. Two minutes later, I, after I hang up my phone, I open my phone and I hit the email logo, little, little uh, app. And never has this happened before in my life. I got an email from a guy. Literally said this, hey, uh, I have a house. I'm gonna be knocking it down in a few months. But if you know anybody who needs to stay there for completely free for the next three months, let me know. I'm not joking you. Two minutes after, I've never had an email like that in my life. Right? There's something hunting you down something that loves you. And he's saying, this is it. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. It's actually in you that I take refuge. Track the evidence. There is something bigger than just materialism. And then he says this, verse two, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. So there's two things here. He says, you are my Lord, meaning it's gotta be personal. It's not just great, God exists out there. It's, it's, he has to be Mark Clark's Lord. He has to be Aaron Clark's Lord. He has to be your Lord. Like, like I actually am taking this into my passions. I'm taking this into my affections. I'm taking this into, listen, you are what you love and you will never find joy in Christianity if it always stays as some duty and idea that's out there, but you never take it in and make it yours. The only way to flourish in life is to make it yours, to make it my Lord. It's actually personal. It's something that I love. It's I start making, decisions from a, an inward place. You internalize it. You don't keep it external. How many Christians have I watched just walk away from Christianity because they never internalize it? It was always the faith of their parents or their grandparents. It was never yours. It's got to be yours. And so here, you know, you know, Jesus made decisions. It's very fascinating. In, in, uh, when you read the Greek, I did Greek for a few years in, uh, in college and you would read the Greek and there's these stories about Jesus. And uh, like you can go to uh, Mark chapter one, for instance, and he's sitting and it says, he's trying to make a decision about somebody to heal. And it says in our English translations, it says um, that he was moved with compassion. But that's a really cleaned up way of actually talking about what Jesus' motive for healing a guy was because multiple times in the gospels, it's actually the Greek word splagizomai, splagizomai. And you know what that word means? It literally means from his, um, from his uh, to be moved in the inward parts or the bowels, all right? Now don't think about that too long, all right? But here's the thing. What it literally says is Jesus Christ made a decision to heal someone because he felt it in his bowels, right? In his, in his inward parts, his, the splagizomai, right? Now, that's because it wasn't just like compassion. Like that's a nice clean word, right? I have compassion. It's like, I feel it in my gut. Do you make Christian decisions from your gut because you want it? or just because it's the right thing to do. Right there is a clue on whether you really own this thing. Have you, have you internalized this thing or not? Do you just make decisions based on, well, how much, how many, listen, 
we, we are what we love, right? And so what do you love? Like, what do you actually take pleasure in? Because reason is one thing, but affections and, and, and actual heart and loving something is something else. And here's what I mean. How many marriage counseling moments have I done or premarital counseling have I done with couples who are coming along and I just see some, some really big disconnects, all right? Communication's not good. Conflict's not good. They're not coming from the same place. Their parents were totally different. And I go, oh my goodness. And I sit them down and I say, listen, I'll pull the guy aside. I go, look, Dude, uh, the, re the reason the facts aren't adding up, you're actually not gonna make a good couple. And then his thing to me is, I know that, I totally know that, but man, she's hot. And I'm like, oh gosh. See what's happening right there? He's making a decision from his splagizomai, all right? From the inward parts, not the rational factual, not the, well, all the data says this. And so the question becomes in Christianity, do you, like, how do you get into the sins you get into? The only way to get out of the sins you get into is kind of the same way you get into them. It's by loving Jesus more than you love the sin is the only way out of the sin. It's not thinking your way out of it. Now, this is very important. You didn't become a materialist because you thought about, I want to go on Amazon every day and order cheap and useless consumer goods. I want to go to the mall and be defined by my Chanel bag and my nonsense $300 jeans. You didn't think your way into that. You know how you got into that? You felt your way into it. James K.A. Smith wrote a book and he says this about materialism. He says the mall or Amazon right now, because none of you can go to the mall, is a religious experience, Smith says. He says, it doesn't care what you think. It is interested in what you love. The mall doesn't try to convince us. It attracts us. Its power isn't logic, he says. It's beauty. A winsome invitation to share in the envisioned good life. The way to the heart is through the body, you could say. See, your love for things is going to be based on, okay, what did I allow myself to love? It's not based on logic. It's based on beauty. What was sparkly? What drew me in? And what the Bible's saying is God should be able to be the most sparkly, beautiful, feeling thing that there is. And if he's not, that's what you got to work on. That's what you have to go, Lord, help me actually like you. Help me love you, not just believe in you, right? That's what the whole point. There's this um, two passages in the Bible about this guy named Demas. You can go look him up. He's got a sad story and I don't want it to be your story, which is why I'm sharing this. Philemon chapter one, here's what Paul says. This is very, this is dangerous. He goes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends you greetings, he says, as do Mark and Demas, my fellow workers. Sounds good. Demas is working with the apostle Paul. He's a fellow worker. Later on in 2 Timothy, which comes years after Philemon, Paul says this. This is tragedy. Demas has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Why? He fell in love with this present world. That's the question. Do you actually have a faith that is your own from your splagizomai? from your inward parts. For me. Do you actually feel this thing or not? 
My fear is you live this thing vicariously through other people, that you live this thing maybe through the church you belong to or the preacher that you listen to or the worship songs that you watch on YouTube and you think that that means you actually know God, but it hasn't been yours. You see, that's theirs. That's their faith. The performer on the, on the, on the stage or on the worship band, that's, that's, that's them. He says, um, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. See, here would be a fascinating experiment. Imagine in this moment, all the internet just shut down. Okay, in this moment in the world, all the internet just went away. It was like, you know what? We're having a tough time of it. We're gonna shut down the internet for a while. Two years, we're gonna just close the internet down. Now, some of you just went, ah! You're freaking out, all right? You're like, what am I gonna do for my Insta feed? All right, so internet goes down. Who are you if you don't have me? Who are you? if you can't download Francis Chan sermons and Stephen Furtick sermons or whatever you listen to, who are, do you have faith that is your own if you can't identify with some kind of tribal influencer on your life through the internet, whatever? Do you have a faith that is, it's my Lord, it's my God. This is what he's saying. It's gotta be you. It's not about your spouse. It's not about your grandparents. It's not about your neighbor. It's about none of those things. It's about a faith that you should have. And then he says this, um, I have no good apart from you. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. This is fascinating. What do you mean human beings have no good apart from God? He's saying in a sense, yes, in a sense, no. Yes, we're made in the image of God. So people who don't believe in God can build hospitals and do philanthropic work and it's great and it's beautiful and they're made in the image of God, so it happens. But what he's saying is I have no like ultimate salvific good in me. I can't earn my way to heaven by being a good person. Doesn't matter how many hospitals I, I build, doesn't matter how many good things I do, I'm not like ultimately uh, salvifically good. Uh, in fact, uh, and there's a lot of people who push back against that in the Western world and say, we are good people. But the Bible comes along and goes, you have to be very careful because even the good things you do aren't necessarily altruistic. They're not, they're not born out of just an altruistic, pure motive to do good things. Um, for instance, naturalistic Darwinian theory tells us we do things that are good for others, but in the end of the day, it's only because it was gonna be good for us, right? And so Richard Dawkins himself, he puts it this way. He says, the hunter needs a spear and the guy who builds the spear wants meat. So they help each other out. I'll build you a spear, you go get me meat. Then he says this, flowers can't fly. So they pay bees in the currency of nectar for the hire of their wings. See, what is the reason behind the reason you do anything? Is it really just a pure good? Or is there something in it for you? See, even as a pastor, like sometimes I find myself, I'm like, I'm doing good for someone. And someone's like, thank you for doing that good. You bless me. And I'm like, why did I do that? Was it born out of like actual good? Or was it because I'm a pastor that I felt like I had to do it? I'm like, I get paid for this. I better call someone and make sure they're okay. This is what I'm telling you. We always have to go inside. See, here's what's fascinating. You go read Mark chapter 10. There's two bros uh, who are coming up to Jesus and they're like, hey, Jesus, uh, will you do whatever we ask of you? And he's like, well, why don't you throw it at me first before I tell you I'm gonna do it? And uh, they're like, okay, can we sit on your left and your right in your kingdom? And Jesus is like, no, I'm not gonna give you left or right of my kingdom. That's not even my job. I don't even know what you're talking about. And it's a fascinating question for you and me. 
we applaud as a modern culture, anybody who wants to show any interest in Jesus, right? We get jacked up. We're like, woohoo, you showed interest in Jesus. Amazing. Jesus asks a follow-up question though. Why? Why are you interested? What is your motivation for being interested in me? Is it so you can get power? To sit on my left and my right in my kingdom? Is it so you can get a girl? Is it so you can get ahead in business, in your community? So you think that becoming part of a church might get you connected like Lego? What's the reason behind the reason for you? And is that always pure? Is that always good? See, this is what this means. There's nothing good in me. I have no good part apart from you. I have nothing good, but you save me. And so this is where the difference is, is that in order to be righteous, in order to be justified by faith and good in the sense, because look, what I, look at the pivot. Verse three, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones. So how do I move into from sinner and nothing's good in me to become categorical saint? Or as the New Testament would say, how do I get justified? Well, you do that by faith. And as Jonathan Edwards says, uh, what's the most important part of faith? Love, back to our point. You actually have to love him. And so here's 2 Corinthians chapter five. Here's what he says, Paul. God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us. Why? So that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's what Martin Luther called the great exchange. He got our sin, we get his righteousness. That's how we become saints. And some of you haven't done that yet. And today you need to give your life to Jesus and say, I wasn't one of the excellent ones because I was good, but I wasn't like definitively salvifically good in the sense of righteous. I needed the righteousness of Christ on me so that when God in the end, as my friend Daryl Johnson says, one day we're all gonna die and we're gonna come before God. And there's one of two options that we're going to say. There's two options you can do. You can either put your own record in front of God or you can put the, the record of Jesus in front of God and then say, define me by one of these. And he says, I'm gonna go with the second one, I have no hope in the first one. I'm going to go with the righteousness of Christ, the record of Christ on my behalf. And then I become, what does he say? An excellent one. It's beautiful. I actually become an excellent one. See, here's the thing. Um, There's a lot of people who beat the church up for a lot of stuff. And I get the church isn't perfect, but I get sick of it sometimes because think of what the church is. Who's, Who's taking care of the poor right now? in the midst of COVID? Who's taking care, who all the way through history, who has given their life for the sake of the poor? The church, over and over and over. It's the church, it's not agnostic, atheistic groups that are getting, make sure you give all your money so we can, listen, even what have we done? We've done golf tournaments for sex slaves and, and building stuff in Iraq, um, Uganda. We've raised literally in golf tournaments two or $3 million over the last bunch of years and giving it away. Who's doing that? The church, the excellent ones. Guys, listen, for all the beating up that we do in the church, there's excellent ones. And I'm so proud of you. You are giving, you're being generous, you're staying on mission so that we can continue to do what we're doing to actually minister and love people and get the message of Jesus out. Guys, listen, I know we beat ourselves up in self-examination and we go inside of ourselves and we know we're sinful and we're very aware of that. But let me just tell you something. You're also righteous in Christ. 
And in him, in the end, you have a perfection that is Jesus. The father wraps the robe around you that is his own robe. You are an excellent one. You're doing a good job. Be encouraged. Walk out your holiness in life. Don't beat yourself up as a categorical sinner, sinner, sinner all the time. What are you saying? You've moved to saint. And so then he says, verse four, look at this. The sorrow of those who run after another God shall multiply, right? Matthew Henry, the the Bible commentator, he says, uh, those who multiply gods multiply grief, right? Here's the reality in our life. Now that means a couple of things. It means like actual other religions. Like if you're not following the God of Jesus Christ, then you're following after false religions. And, but it's also like the people who go after family and money and sex and power and all those. And we talk about that often, so I'm not gonna spend too much time on it, but the idea of you find your value and worth in all of those worldly things. What does he say will be the end of that? The end of that, he says, is you're gonna multiply grief for yourself, multiply sorrow, right? That in the midst of your boredom, in the midst of your fear, in the midst of your pain, what does Jesus Christ give you? He gives you an identity and he gives you a mission, And when you have those things, you can flourish. But when you don't have those things, if you just go after money or just go after fame or just go after having a great family and your perfect little thing, you will multiply sorrow for yourself. Why? Because those things are gonna fail you. Those things are not going to actually give you eternal life and they're not gonna give you long-term joy. There's a principle of life here, right? Some of you are like, yeah, but Christianity's hard. It's like cost of discipleship stuff. So I'm constantly trying to trade out is the the short-term pain worth the long-term gain when Jesus says, I want you to carry your cross. I don't know if it's worth it. Listen, there's a principle of life and it's always worth it. Short-term gain ends up, you have to have the long game in mind because it ends up in long-term gain. Now, here's what I mean. Um, okay, uh, can of Coke. Oh, Coke, caffeine, 40 grams of sugar. If I cracked a Coke right now and chugged it down, all right, it would like, it's amazing, all right? My brain starts fuzzing out, all right? It's just like, it's all fizzy, it's legit. Man, it's so good in the short term, isn't it? So good. Long term, what does it do? Gives me a dad bod, right? Gives me a dad bod, bro. Think about it. You love pizza, oh, pizza with the sauce and the bread and the pepperonis and the cheese. All legit, goes down. What does it do? Not good things, donuts, all right, eating lots of donuts. These things, these are short-term, amazing, titillating things. Long game, sorrow. So do you have the self-discipline to recognize, man, you know, I go short-term discipline, so I might have to restrict myself from sleeping with anyone I want or, or doing business practices where I can just step on everyone's throat to get ahead in life. And I might have to have some discipline in my life, but it's because there's a long-term gain of the glory and the joy that Jesus Christ is offering me. There's an eternal expression of flourishing, which we're gonna talk about in a second, but there's also recognized, it's very interesting. He says, um, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. What's the eternal expression of that? Like oftentimes people in the church go, you know what church? Okay, fine. We like your philanthropic work. So continue helping people, continuing loving people, help the poor. But can you knock off the preaching? 
like the preaching so exclusive and it's mean and it's judgmental. You say the Christianity is the only way. Do you know how offensive that is? If you could just do your nice stuff for people then and, and lay off the preaching, everyone would like you. Here's the problem. I want you to listen to me for a second, all right? Here's the problem. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, when he teaches, you know what he says? He says, there's actually a thing called hell. And he says, it's forever. And there's going to be torment and there's going to be pain and there's going to be suffering and there's going to be sorrow when you live life without Jesus Christ in your life, okay? An eternal expression. So here's why the church doesn't just shut up and do good work and then move on with their life. Because not only do I need, if your premise is, the church's job is to relieve suffering, then the church has this weight of relieving the eternal expression of suffering. That we actually need to get people's lives, souls, bodies out of not only the present suffering, but the eternal expression of that suffering, which is why we don't stop preaching, which is why we don't stop telling people about Jesus because we don't want their sorrows to multiply. This is what he's saying because they will multiply infinitely, forever, eternally. And so he says, look, what's the other option? He says, verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. I have a beautiful, verse six, I have a beautiful inheritance. Verse nine, therefore my heart is glad. I love this. Verse 11, in your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I love this. He's saying, man, you have the discipline up front for the long-term joy and gain, right? It's like, I'm watching this Michael Jordan documentary right now. And it's like, okay, how are you going to get six rings? You got to be in the gym by 5 a.m. That's how, bro. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to discipline, eat the right things, work out the right way, practice harder than anybody else in order to get that long-term gain? Or are you so weak that you just go to the thing that's right in front of you? This is the question of this text that's weighing on us in regard to the gospel. Are you willing to do the cost of discipleship thing for the long-term gain? Are you willing to have that kind of life and discipline? Because here's what he says. It's kind of like this. There's fullness of joy coming down the pike. There's beautiful things. Jesus says in John 4, you can drink this water, but you're gonna thirst again. You drink the water I'm gonna give you, you're never gonna thirst again. You're gonna have a kind of joy and satisfaction in heaven nothing on this earth can even touch. Take the greatest pleasure on this planet. Oftentimes people say it's sex. For a lot of people, it's different things. It's money, whatever, but just take that image for a second. It, what if sexuality, which is the greatest kind of physical pleasure on this planet, was just a pointer to the kind of, look at what he says, pleasures forevermore, fullness of joy. What if, what if sex is like this little, like in regard to the kind of pleasure you're gonna experience in heaven, the greatest thing you can think of is like, Meh, whatever, that's just small. That was a pointer to a much bigger thing. That's what we're talking about here. And this is where Christianity's done a bad job, right? I mean, you, you talk to Mormons, Right, Mormons are like, dude, we're going to have interplanetary sex. There's going to be all kinds of them. Right, you talk to a Muslim, they're like, we're going to get some virgins. All right, it's gonna be, heaven's going to be crazy. And then Christians are like, and we're going to have harps and we're floating and we have white sheets. Everyone's like, man, sign me up for Islam. Right? Why? Because it's going to, this is why one guy wrote a book called Why Men Hate Going to Church. And it's like, because it's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to sing for eternity in a white sheet in a disembodied bliss Kill me now, all right? That's not the picture of eternal life. Look what he just said. Pleasures forevermore. Something you can't, you ever wondered how could Jesus stay single 
never sleep with anybody, never get married for 33 years. You know why? Because he knew a greater joy that made that pleasure just like a whatever. Hebrews tells us this, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. He was able to take that long game. Now, how do you get to any of this joy of which the greatest things on earth are just pointers? How do you get there? This is where Jesus preached that sermon. You know what verse he honed in on? This one right here, verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, the grave, or let your Holy One see corruption, see decay. You know what that verse is about? Yeah, it's about David brilliantly looking around going, I know, it's brilliant. He does the logic of faith. He says, every single human who's ever lived has died and just died. But I, in the logic of my faith, know that if you take care of me in this life, if you protect me in this life, then you're gonna take care of me in the next life. That's where my logic of faith goes. Even though every single person has died, you're not gonna let me see corruption. And then Peter gets up in Acts 2 and Paul gets up in Acts 13 and goes, you know what this text was really about? It was about Jesus Christ and the fact that he died and three days later he rose again and God wouldn't let his Holy One see corruption. He wouldn't let him stay in the grave forever. He rose again in order to what? To bring you to the place where there are pleasures forevermore. The question is, what have you done with that? Guys, I want you to give your life to Jesus. This is why he suffered. He died. You're sinful. You are not good enough to do this. So he came and actually did it for you. He gave his life on a cross, died for sin, rose again to give you eternal life. And now in this moment, we say to ourselves, okay, am I willing to put my life in his hands? Let me pray for us as we end this Psalm. Lord, I pray that you have spoken and that we have been courageous enough to receive what you have spoken in this moment. And I pray, Lord, even in this moment in our living rooms, wherever we're watching this, that Holy Spirit, we would feel you. We would know that you are behind the veil, that you are actually real and that you're hunting us down and reaching out and speaking to us right now, even through this song and that we would give our life. We would repent of our sin, that we would confess with our mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, is Savior. He died, but he rose again, that you didn't let your Holy One see corruption and decay in order for our justification, for our sanctification, our, our becoming more like you, our glorification ultimately in heaven where there will be pleasures forevermore that we can't even dream of right now, but you're the only way there. Capture us with this, change us, everything about us, Lord, and let us worship you in response to that reality. In Jesus' good name we pray, amen.